0: All right, sound is speeding. We are recording. Cool. All right, let's begin. Either they don't know, don't show, I don't care about what's going on in the hood. Chocolate. I let nobody mess with me, and I do what I want. Hi, my name is Robert Taylor, and I'm a black actor. You got knocked the fuck out, man. Give me my goddamn money. The payback's a motherfucker ain't met. Never. And that's the double truth. Ruth. What's up, everybody? Welcome to Adventures in Black Cinema, your passport to black film. Welcome back. If you are a returning listener, and if you are, thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, Thank you to, yeah, I mean, everyone who's been listening and, like, sending me messages about how much they love the show and... People who've said that to me in person, just thank you for tuning in. It really means a lot. That's really, really dope of you. So uh, thank you for returning. Um, My name is Desmond Thorne, and I will be your host and your film aficionado for the day. This episode is called Adventures in Cycles and Cautionary Tales, and we are getting into the nitty gritty of Menace to Society, a 90s classic. But first... A Decease and Desist. White folks don't bullshit. He's dead. Fuck him. Let's move on. We gotta have four days with this dead motherfucker. Four days! So if it's your first time at Adventures in Black Cinema, or... If you've never listened to an episode that has a decease and desist in it, you may not know what it is. So I'm gonna break it down for you real quick. A decease and desist is when I see something in the media, either it's something that someone has said, it's usually something that someone has said or done that I disagree with. I like to talk about it and give it a decease and desist so that people are aware of some of the fuckery and fuck shit that can happen in this industry, especially in regards to when it happens about and around Black folks in our industry. So... This week's Decease and Desist, something that I want to just dead right now on Arrival, is the fact that Journey Smollett was labeled as a breakout on Deadline Hollywood. So for those who don't know, Deadline Hollywood is essentially an online publication where they're always... Publishing, um, entertainment news, you know, they're talking about shows that have been greenlit, you know, movies that are in production and development. You're getting news on creators, actors, writers, directors, even sometimes when people get like switched from a major agency to another agency. So this is like something that people rely on for their news, right? In terms of the Hollywood industry, so when you're labeling someone like Journey Smollett as a breakout, um, that is absolutely incorrect. Um, the reason why they're referring to her as such is because she was recently cast in a Netflix film called Spiderhead with Chris Hemsworth and Miles Teller. And... This use of the word breakout is literally just code for the fact that white people just discovered her because she's literally been acting since she was six years old. <laughs> she was 11 years old when she starred in Eve's Bayou and has been steadily working ever since. Like she was in Full House. She was in the movie Jack with Robin Williams. She was in Bill Cosby's second show. We do not speak his name, but that is just a fact, she was in the show. She won a NAACP Image Award for that show. She was in Selma Lord Selma. She was in Friday Night Lights, the TV show. She was in The Great Debaters, a movie directed by Denzel Washington. She was in True Blood. She was in Underground, which is also run by Misha Green, who was, who is the showrunner on Lovecraft Country. And she was just in Birds of Prey, the Harlequin movie that came out earlier this year. She has a filmography. She has been acting longer than both of her white male counterparts. Longer, and she has been a legend in the black community. So, deadline, before you call someone a breakout who's been acting longer than both those white dudes, I don't know, maybe like do a Google search Go on IMDB for a quick sec and just look some shit up and check yourself before you wreck yourself. Thank you so much. That felt really good to get off my chest. You are here for one reason. One Okay, doke, so like I said at the beginning of the episode, I am super, super excited for this episode because we are getting into the nitty gritty of Menace to Society. This film was directed by Alan Hughes and Albert Hughes, and it was released in 1993. Here's a little summary of the film if you are unfamiliar with it, if you haven't seen it. This film is a story about a young man named Kane, played by Tyron Turner, who is a street hustler, a gangbanger, if you will, and the events that happened to Kane and his friends over one summer after his best friend, O-Dog, played by the wonderful Lorenz Tate, uh, after O-Dog murders two Korean store owners... Um, at a convenience store. So during this summer, Kane grapples with the choice of either sticking around Watts where he lives and continuing this uh, violent cycle in his life or to possibly escape. Uh, this film also stars Jada Pinkett Smith, Samuel L. Jackson, MC8. Clifton Powell, Charles S. Dutton, and Brandon Hammond. Brandon Hammond, again, this is the third film that we have seen on the podcast with young Brandon Hammond. Uh, he was also in Waiting to Exhale and Tales from the Hood. So he is uh, three. I think Wesley Snipes has been in three movies so far. So I think like we'll see you know, as we get closer to the end of the show, which actor has been in the most movies so far on the podcast? I think so far Brandon Hammond and Wesley Snipes are winning. I would have to think about it again. Um, I know Loretta Devine has been in two. Alfre Woodard has been in two. Yeah. I would be super interested, super interested. So anyway... Some fun facts about this movie. Uh, Tupac was originally supposed to play the role of Sharif, who is one of Cain's friends, who is now um, studying Islam and follows Islam and is a Muslim. And um, Tupac didn't want to play this role because he, according to him, um, there was no such thing as a gangbanger who is also Muslim. Uh, they did not exist, according to Tupac, and he didn't want to play something that wasn't authentic. Um I guess that there were some feelings around that. I think maybe Tupac was like, so why don't you just rewrite it? And they were like, no, because six months later, Tupac assaulted Alan Hughes and was afterward found guilty for assault and battery. Uh, and Tupac did end up working with the Hughes brothers again after that situation. So I think that they, you know, had a little kiki and got things together, and were able to work together again. Um, Another fun fact, uh, the word fuck is used in this film in various ways, three hundred and five times, which I think is pretty dope. Um, there, I think it's just, uh, I think it's just a, an appropriate word for many, many situations, um, an endless amount of situations. Uh, it's a noun and it's a verb. It's, uh, pretty amazing. And, um, there is, it should be noted, lots of profanity in this movie and lots of violence. And the violence is done in a very realistic way. Like, when someone gets shot, you really see what happens to a body when bullets go into it. It's not made to be glorified in any sense, which I really appreciate. Um, It's just really telling the truth about what happens to a body when bullets go through it. And also um, kind of how the body reacts when it's about to die as well. I feel like that's done very realistically here. And I appreciate the film for that. Um, last fun fact is that New Line Cinema, who was the distribution company for this movie, mandated that a platinum rapper be cast in the film, and they probably wanted to do that to make some sort of, like, you know, uh, marketing connection, essentially. They're like, you're making movies about gangbangers, and, you know, it's gonna be very popular in the black community. Why don't you put a rapper in there and make sure it's a very, um, you know high sales rapper very popular rapper so that people can see that and then they'll want to go see the movie so mc8 was cast in this film and he is quite quite good in it it's got me in the state where i don't give a damn somebody help me but no they don't hear me though i guess i'll be another victim of the ghetto ain't no escaping because i'm way too young is Dillin' and not top of that got mom, sprung, steaming off the top. Pops never figure. Daddy go down but the hands of another nigger. Not my pops. Um, and I think, you know, sometimes these studios and these distributors can sometimes make you do something like that. Um, That seems um, a little fake and possibly disingenuous just to sell more tickets to the movie and make a higher box office revenue. But I think the Hughes brothers honestly make the best out of it by casting MC8 in this movie. So before... I tell you about my first experience with the film. I'm just going to tell you to shut up right now because this is my first time seeing this actually oh, You have got to be kidding Shut up, shut up, shut up. Because, and I'll explain this to you, like I've explained other times when there are movies from the early 90s that I didn't see until either this year or a couple years ago. It's because I was three years old when this movie came out. So... By the time I was old enough to see this movie, really, because like I said, there's a lot of violence in it. And there is kind of like, you know, any movie that is like a a, a teen gang film, we'll call them. Um, you know, my mom was not a huge fan of. So it's not like there was a fandom around the film in my house that would be there for, like, a Spike Lee movie, you know, or something like Down in the Delta. You know, those films I was able to see a lot earlier because they were in the house. And also, um, there was more of an interest for them around me. So I really didn't go outside of the interest of my parents until I was in, like... uh, I guess a little bit middle school... And then, like, fully in high school. Um, And, yeah, so there's a lot of movies from that era, from the era of the early 90s specifically, that I'm really... Just catching up on, and I know that this movie's a fucking classic. Like, and I've seen the "I'll suck your dick" scene. Like, Come on, man, wait, 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 man, 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 I'll suck your dick. Come on, man, just hook me up. What the fuck? Come you on. just say, nigga. Man, I said I suck your dick. Come on, man, let's get fuck. Damn. <laughs> suck on that you bitch ass trick. I have. It's not like this is my first time seeing this movie or hearing. You know, seeing all of this movie, I had seen parts of it. Um, it is a legendary film with black people. Um, O-Dog is a legendary character. Um, and I've known a lot about it. I just had not sit, sat down and seen the whole thing. So shut up. Leave me alone. Leave me alone. Um, but what I had seen before this is the Wayne's Brothers parody film called Don't Be a Menace to South Central while drinking your juice in the hood. Man, can you look in the direction to Grinshaw, man? Oh, you better get your crusty behind away from me. Man, I'll fuck your dick, man. What you say to me? I'll fuck your dick, man. Oh man. All right, so what you want to do, my man, go to the corner, about three blocks down and make a right. Uh, make a right this down. is a, a parody film combining all of those kind of like teen gang dramas uh, that I was just talking about of that time. So I'm very familiar with the beats of all those movies, but I did miss a lot of those movies specifically um, because my mom was not a huge fan of them. And uh, I think my dad was fine with them. But like, if we didn't own them, They were not as on my radar. And I think to a certain extent when I was younger, I may have thought of them as bad um, because of that reason. And we're going to talk about why we think of certain things because of the environments that we grow up in, actually. So that's a neat little connection. So... Before we get into um, talking about this idea of cycles and cautionary tales within this wonderful film, Menace to Society, like I said earlier, O-Dog is a legendary character with us in our community. Um, first of all, this is Lorenz Tate's debut performance in a feature film and he absolutely knocks it out of the fucking park. I mean, O-Dog is a character who is very scary and at the same time, like, he seems like he's a lot of fun to be around and he's charming and charismatic and he's also out of his fucking mind. Like... And you can understand why people are friends with him. You know, he's that friend who would push you beyond what you think your boundaries are and you'd end up doing some, like, fun and, like, dangerous shit. And also, at the same time, that can be bad. So there's, like, a good side to that friendship and there's also a bad side to that friendship. And honestly, if you have not had a friend like that in your life, you simply haven't lived. If you don't have a crazy friend who sometimes when you hang out, you're just like, what the fuck are we gonna get into today? Like, what the fuck is this dude or this gal or this person about to be on today? Like, it really keeps you on your toes. Keeps you on edge. You learn a lot of lessons from those people, good and bad. Um, And Lorenz Tate is just amazing. He toes this line fucking excellently. And Lorenz Tate, Bradley Cooper, and Leonardo DiCaprio are the same age. The other two have been nominated and have won Oscars. Lorenz Tate has not. I think Lorenz Tate is way more talented. I mean, already just in the films that we've talked about that he's been in, you know, talking about him in this movie and talking about him in Love, Jones. It's just amazing that he showed so much versatility always, always, always. And this is just a salute to you, Mr. Tate. You should be more famous I want you to be more famous. If you don't want to be more famous, I respect that choice. I get it. But you're so good. You're so good. So let's get into a little bit about some cycles. So I think if the pandemic has really taught us anything, um it has taught us that in many ways, history repeats itself, right? I mean, there have been, I guess we'll call them plagues like this before in terms of COVID-19, and also just in terms of racial injustice. We just keep seeing it over and over and over again. And, you know, history repeats itself. And the only way to kind of stop that is to know what has come before, be rooted in that and have enough context for those events so that you know how to move forward. And I think that this idea is very prevalent in this film. You know, history repeats itself. And there are different kinds of cycles that are presented here in this film. There are cycles of violence, cycles with drugs, um, familial cycles. um, And these all kind of bleed into each other, right? Right. Um, you can't really have one without the other. And they all kind of feed off of each other. And they all come together to almost become their own cycle for these characters in the film and then also for this community that is in Watts, California um, in real life. So, um, you know, after the opening scene of this film with Odog who, again, is super scary and kills those Korean shop owners. Um, The film then, after that kind of cold open for the movie, after you start hearing Kane's narration, the Hughes brothers start the film with archival footage from the Watts uprising. And this is an event that is a huge, huge, huge important part of Black history, in my opinion and it's not talked about in schools and it's not taught in schools, they don't teach you about these kinds of black rebellions in schools. And you want to know why? It's because they don't don't want them to happen happen again. again. So they try to suppress it every generation so that people don't realize that this shit has happened before and the ways in which we could do it um, better, do it harder, do it faster, do it stronger, which I think is is what's happening now um, in many ways, and, um yeah, we learn about the fucking French Revolution, the American Revolution, of course, the Chinese Revolution. We learn about a lot of important revolutions in history, the Russian Revolution. But we don't learn about the black revolutions that have happened in this country. So, here's a little story that must be told. And it goes a little something like this. yes an ABC history lesson because there's a reason why the Hughes brothers start the movie with this footage. They're not just like, hmm, let's just do this for the sake of doing this, right? Like, let's just start this movie with this archival footage. Um, What they're really doing is giving you the context of the environment and the timeline of the events that are kind of leading up to the events of the movie. So the Watts uprising, which is often known as the uh, Watts riots, I don't like to call these events riots. I think that they are forms of social protest. They are revolutions um, and they are uprisings because these are all events in which you just keep pressing down on black people in so many various ways with so many various systems that we have no other choice but to fight back. What do you expect? What do you expect? So the Watts uprising uh, happened in Watts, California. It happened in 1965. And I think that... um, civil rights activist Bayard Rustin really sums up this event so nicely. He says, The whole point of the outbreak in Watts was that it marked the first major rebellion of Negroes against their own masochism and was carried on with the express purpose of asserting that they would no longer quietly submit to the deprivation of slum life. And that is so real. I mean, yes, um, the Watts uprising was definitely fighting against police brutality and police violence that had been happening already for years and years and years. And honestly, just centuries of Black people. But, you know, Black people moving to L.A. was still, like, um, you know, a thing that really didn't happen a lot until... um, World War 2 about um and you know it was obviously like i said there was definitely a fight against police violence um you know LAPD has already had a you know military like police force and that definitely like fell into this event as well um besides the inciting incident of marquette fry who was assaulted by the police um after being pulled over for alleged reckless driving Um, Black people were forced into neighborhoods like Compton and Watts and that therefore they were also not given the same economic and educational opportunities as everyone else by being pushed into those neighborhoods and really being segregated into those neighborhoods. Um, There was a very popular thing that real estate people would do called blockbusting, which is where um, they would buy a home on an all-white street and they would sell or rent this home to a Black family and then buy up the remaining homes from Caucasians at like deeply discounted prices and then sell them to uh, Black people who needed housing at hefty, huge, huge, huge profits. And then um, there was a housing act called the Rumford Fair Housing Act, which was, you know, meant to kind of reverse this residential segregation. And it was overturned by a law called Proposition 14, which was sponsored by the California real estate industry and, of course, was supported by white voters. So that was overturned so they could just do whatever they wanted. And so... This led to, of course, Black people being very upset and, you know, wanting change. And the only way that change is going to happen is, you know, people are tired of this shit. You know, you can only do so much to a group of people before they rise. And so this uprising lasted about six days. Um, You know, there were like maybe three... Law enforcement casualties and about like thirty four uh, civilian casualties. About um, again, this event. When you see the footage of it in the movie, it looks like a war zone. Like it's insane how much National Guard the police got involved with this uh, for something that is so truly and completely their fault. Like instead of just changing things and being like, all right we see where we fucked up, let's change it. They're holding on to it so hard and just, you know, not helping the situation at all. Just, you know, fanning fire onto the flame is really all these cops do. And all these, you know, lawmakers and all of these politicians, that's all they do. And, you know, when you grow up in an environment that, you know, That happens in the 60s. Then, you know, to keep black people down even further, uh, the cops introduce uh, crack into the neighborhoods. And then the lawmakers and the politicians, you know, they have the back of the police. And what they do is that they make laws so that jail time is a lot Heavier and longer for people who have, uh, who are in possession of crack or who are caught selling crack. So essentially, what you're doing, again, talking about a cycle, is that you're keeping black people in poverty. You are giving them drugs as another tool to keep them in poverty and to also make sure that when they are found with these drugs, they go to jail. And even if they do get out of jail, life for them afterwards will not be the same. They won't have the same opportunities. And they make it so that this is a cycle of literally just like keeping us down because, you know, who's going to sell it to them? us, these people in these neighborhoods, these quote-unquote gangbangers and dealers and such. And I think sometimes that those decisions that they make can look like choices. But again, when you grow up in this environment where drugs were introduced in the 70s after riots to keep Black people down, and then there's such a rise in this drug use in the 80s And then what you get after the 80s is you get another uprising in 92 after the incident with Latasha Harlins getting shot um, at the Korean grocery store after this woman thought that she was um, trying to steal something from her store. And this woman was very young. She was 15 years old and she was shot by... um, This Korean store owner who was then tried and convicted of voluntary manslaughter. And uh, instead of being sentenced to any jail time, the judge sentenced her to five years of probation, 400 hours of community service, and $500 restitution and funeral expenses. So this plus the fact that the beating of Rodney King by the police was videotaped and uh, this came 13 days after that event so there's a lot of anger and a lot of unrest in the black community in Los Angeles so it's like on the outside you can look at these dudes who are gangbanging and who are selling and who are doing all these things that you know you want to look down on but it's like look at the environment and they did not create this environment for themselves and there becomes this kind of illusion of choice. It's just like, yes, are there certain certain choices that you can make? Sure, but, you know... I think to a certain extent, especially in America for black people, there's this illusion of choice. There's like, oh, you can do these things, but like, not if this man's boot is on your neck, you know what I mean? Like, there's a really good scene, um, another flashback, actually, that's in the beginning of the movie that takes place in the 80s. So this is the height of the um, crack epidemic, as they call it, um, which was kind of perpetuated by the media. Samuel L. Jackson plays Kane's father. um, And these are the scenes where Brandon Hammond plays Kane. And Samuel L. Jackson is also scary in this movie. He is low-key in Pulp Fiction mode here. He is, like, giving you 100%, you know what I mean? Um, So... (laughs) So basically this the purpose of this scene is to show you that uh, Kane's father was also a drug dealer and uh, Kane's father was, you know, really crazy. And um, kills someone in this scene right in front of Kane. And Kane must be like five or something like that in this scene. So Kane sees his father shoot somebody very violently in the house. And kind of right before that, Kane goes out on the back porch and is talking to his father and his mother's friends. And his mother, side note, is a, a drug addict. Um, he goes out to the back porch. And the uh, friends around him, you know, are giving him uh, liquor to try. And then they also let him hold a gun. So this is something that he's very introduced to very early in life. So that is kind of like what he sees as his destiny. And that is what he grows up to do. You know, is Kane's life different than his parents in some ways? Yes, because... You know, it is revealed when we get to the present day that Cain's father and mother have both died at this point. Um, he lives with his grandparents now and he does graduate high school and it kind of seems like he could be on the right track. But, you know, again, certain events and being in this environment and also seeing this as the option of what to do and like this being the life, you know, what else are you going to do? Um, And the scene in the beginning with Kane as a kid also mirrors and goes along with this kind of cyclical nature of things. Um, You know, Kane eventually gets involved with Jada Pinkett Smith's character, who is a previous boo of um, Kane's gang mentor. And she has a kid named Anthony. And there's a point in the movie where Kane lets Anthony hold his gun and see what that's like, which Jada Pinkett Smith flips her shit out um, when she sees that, which, you know, I would, too, T-B-H, to be fair, would lose my shit if I saw my low-key kind of boyfriend letting my son hold a gun. And then there's a party near the end where Jada Pinkett Smith's character is throwing a party because her and Kane are deciding to move away. Um, And um, Anthony is in his bed. He's supposed to be, you know, in his room. But he goes out to the back porch, just like Kane did in the beginning of the movie. And, you know, they let him try booze. So he is having the same experiences. This is a cycle, and it's very smart for the Hughes brothers to use this tool because it does, again, show that there is kind of an illusion of choice here. You know, what you grow up seeing is, unless you're getting some sort of, like, counter-programming, that's strong counter-programming. And it's counter-programming that makes sense to you and doesn't make you feel excluded from an experience that you see everyone else around you having. I mean, everyone around him has money and they're doing well and they're able to, you know, um, get a lot further in this life than they could in other Ways because they are young black men, you know? Um, This is the life that's kind of destined for them where they're growing up. And the system really makes sure of that, you know? Um... So, in speaking of these kind of choices, um, it brings me to the idea of cautionary tales. I mean, this movie doesn't really get branded as a cautionary tale, even though it is in a lot of ways, because it doesn't feel like one. Sometimes cautionary tales can really feel like Bible parables. And by that, I mean, they can be interesting, and they can have good intentions, but the way that they're written and delivered just gets an automatic, like, I ain't trying to hear all of that. I ain't trying to hear all that. You know what I mean? Like, they aren't delivered and written in a way that leaves you open to receive the knowledge. It's like there's someone talking at you and trying to get you to grow from like the top rather than from the bottom. This is definitely a plant metaphor. It is so much better to water your plants from the bottom because the water is getting directly into the roots and you're allowing them to grow and have space. Rather than watering from the top, you're really just getting a lot of water on the leaves and splashing the soil around. So I think that definitely bleeds into how we receive information as people. Um there is uh, with Kane's grandparents because his parents are not alive like I said they died pretty early in his life so Kane's grandparents raise him and at first when you introduce to them you know they are sweet people they you know congratulate him on graduating from high school they say that his parents would be so proud of him but as the movie goes on you kind of see that you know though they have good intentions they are not teaching Cain in the best way possible for him to really want to change his life. His grandfather will often just, like, read Bible passages to him and preach at him. And that's something that this movie really avoids doing. This movie doesn't feel like your average cautionary tale because it's not preaching at you. It's just telling you the truth, telling you the way that things are, and kind of letting you decide how uh, things have gotten this way and how things are. It's not judgmental. It's just very real. Um... There's a wonderful scene that kind of uh, is the antithesis to what Cain's grandparents tell him by just kind of reading him Bible verses and quoting at him stuff about God and stuff like that. Um, Charles S. Dutton makes a really cool two-scene cameo in here. The first time you see him, he's at a barbecue that looks fucking slamming. Oh my God. It just made me want to go to a barbecue so bad with people and to see people again. Um... And uh, so Charles S. Dutton plays Sharif's father. And like I said, Sharif is the young uh, friend who is now pra- practicing Islam in the group of friends. Um, so Charles S. Dutton is having a conversation with Kane in his classroom. He's a teacher. And uh, it's worth noting that you really don't see anyone else in the movie Uh, who's a black man around the age as Charles S. Dutton in this movie. I think uh, that's a very interesting and important statement. Kind of seeing that a lot of the other black men who are around that age are either dead or they're in jail. Um, And Charles S. Dutton is one of the people who has kind of made it in this environment without having to resort to gangbanging or... um, you know, drug dealing. And Charles S. Dutton really sits Kane down and he really kind of like gets to Kane in a way that no one else can. Because again, he's just telling him the truth. He's just presenting facts to him. He's presenting like you could either stay in this life or, you know, you could do something else. You could go somewhere else. You could kind of, you know, try to make this situation being a black man in this country, which is a shitty situation into something else for you. And he does that by also showing him that he is an example, you know, a line that he really says that Charles S. Sutton really says that really stuck with me is that like the hunt is on and you are the prey as a black man in America. That just really like struck an absolute chord with me um, in this movie. And it really strikes a chord with Kane too. Um, and again, the Hughes brothers, super smart filmmakers, um, in this scene where Charles S. Dutton is presenting that, like, you do have a choice and you can get out. And eventually Kane does make the choice to get out with Jada Pinkett Smith and move with her and her son and kind of start life anew. Um... The Hughes brothers are like, well, you can make all of those choices and still because of how things are and because of choices that other people make, it's possible that you could not make it in this situation as well. I mean, I think that that is so well shown and displayed by the fact that Sharif does get killed um, in the drive by at the end of this movie. And Sharif is probably the one who's involved with the gang activity less than anyone else in the movie. Um, And again, you know, Charles S. Dutton plays his father, so he's had that influence. He's had that good influence, but he still cannot escape death where he is. Um, And you know, also, Kane has made the choice to better himself and to leave his environment, but he also still does not escape death in this environment. Um, there are other choices that Cain made that did lead to this event. Like, should he have dogged the other woman that he had slept with who is now pregnant? And if you don't know, when you dog somebody, when you dog a woman, is that you deny that you are the father of a child and you move on and you cut off contact. So that's essentially what Cain does this other woman. And then, um, after he dogs this woman, um, he gets into an altercation with this other woman's um, cousin. He fucks this dude up uh, when her cousin comes to confront him in front of his grandparents' house. Um, And then also, at the party, at the going away party the day before, um, Kane fucks up a friend of theirs Um, because he wants to sleep with Jada Pinkett Smith, and obviously Kane and Jada Pinkett Smith are sleeping together, and they are, in fact, going away together. Um, And their friend who wants to do this makes the choice to take the tape that uh, O-Dog has been showing everyone, the CCTV tape from the convenience store of him shooting the two owners. This friend is going to take that to the authorities and is going to expose Odog and Kane for um, the murder because even though Kane didn't do anything, he was there. So regardless of what he did, again, the Hughes brothers being so smart about the illusion of choice, regardless of what he did, Kane was going to end up in jail or he was going to end up dead. It was his destiny from Jump and it's so So sad and this movie is so effective and you know that even though O-Dog survives because the thing with the tape is going to happen, O-Dog is also going to end up in jail. Anthony, the young kid, is going to know about this cycle of violence. He is now involved in this cycle of violence. He has seen a shooting happen in front of his eyes as a young child. He's already held a gun. He's already, you know, experienced a lot of the same things that Cain experienced as a child. And it's just a a cycle that will continue and wow, this movie is just so effective and it's so good and it just represents these events and these people without judgment, these people who are our people. You know, I did not grow up around these experiences really at all. I grew up in a completely different environment and there are people that I grew up with in these like upper middle class and like um, rich black people. Um, who would definitely, and coming from the East Coast, would definitely look down on uh, the people in this movie and really condemn them and say that they had a choice. But like, what's really presented so well here is the question of like, well, do they? And I love that so much. and again, presented as just um, just fact. And, you know, I think that we as black people, no matter what our socioeconomic background is, no matter where we grow up, you know, it is our job to show love and support to people in environments that have been set up by white people to keep them down, you know, just because in some ways we have um, escaped a certain part of that by not being in the same socioeconomic situation we it is really up to us to show uh, as much love to all of our people, except for motherfuckers like Daniel Cameron, as much as possible. Um, And I think this movie does a really good job at really showing that. Um So in conclusion, this movie is fucking great. Um, it shows how often we accurately feel like there is no hope for us in America. You know, these systems that are set up for us to keep us down, it can really... Just make you feel there is no hope. Kane really says at some point when he is at the hospital with Jada Pinkett Smith, Jada Pinkett Smith is like, come on, let's move to Georgia. Like, let's get out of here. Let's get out of this environment. And Kane is just like, does it really matter if I go to Georgia or if I stay in L.A.? Like, I'm still a black man. It does not matter. I'm a black man in America. And that struck a chord with me as well. It shows the various ways in which these systems keep us in these places, Um, and the Hughes brothers do an amazing job by contextualizing what has happened in history and showing how these events and cycles repeat themselves constantly over time. It's also such a great classic fucking 90s movie, you know? uh, There are lots of 90s tropes in here, including amazing party scenes where they use really dope lighting, which I super love and um, the soundtrack is absolutely slamming Got to Give It Up by Marvin Gaye which is one of my favorite songs in the world in this movie. Um, If you are at a black cookout and Got to Give It Up does not play at some point you need to leave because you're at a cookout with imposters and the mac and cheese ain't gonna be right guaranteed. Um, And also black 90s movie trope They have sex to some beautiful, gorgeous music, and it just makes me realize that, like, I need to get my game up in terms of my hookup playlist. It's gotta be, like, some really dope and dank slow Slow, slow, slow jams. Um, And like I was saying, these parties and these gathering scenes in this movie just instantly bring you back to the time, the height of the 90s, which I miss so much. So if you are interested in checking out Menace to Society, which I think you should, this film is available to rent on Amazon and iTunes. All my life I had to fight. So the time has come, the time has come, the time has come for this week's You Better Act Award. And if you're unfamiliar with what the You Better Act Award is, it is an award that I give out to a black actor who has just given a slamming, undeniably great performance that I want to show some praise, love, and attention to. So I do that on my show because I get to because it's mine. So this week's You Better Act Award goes to, drum roll please, <laughs> Michaela Cole in I May Destroy You. This series is fucking incredible. It's literally about everything. Um, There is a large focus in this series on um, consent, uh, rape, sexual assault, harassment, and exploitation at so, so many levels, and it's done with such accuracy and care. This is based on um, actual things and actual events that have occurred in Michaela's life um, as she was sexually assaulted while she was writing her show Chewing Gum. It is so amazing. Um, Michaela stars as Arabella, a young author in the UK who was raped at a club, and it shows the emotional aftermath of that event, And um, how she deals with it, how her friends deal with it, and also certain things that go on with her friends and other people that are in her life. Um, There is also intersectional looks at all of these issues, as well as a look at Ghanaian culture in the UK. Michaela is so natural, so heartbreaking, and also sometimes super funny, which is what she was previously known for on her show Chewing Gum and also as well as like Black Mirror and other work that she's done. She is the creator of the series, and she also wrote it and co-directed many of the episodes as well. She is a renaissance, and I cannot wait to see this sweep at next year's Emmys. It's a very important piece, honestly. It is um, just everything that I think that needs to be seen by pretty much everyone. And as much as I want you all to see it, I would also say that like, don't let anyone force you to watch this before you're ready. You know, take your time, watch it when you are ready and know when that time will be. Um, It's going to be on HBO forever, so, you know, there are certain things that I can definitely see being triggering for sure. Take your time, you know? Um, And I think that she would want that for you as well. Uh, So like I said, this show is streaming on HBO and HBO Max, so check it out. So in closing, some food for thought for this week. Have you ever been in a tough situation that you did not think that you could escape? How were you able to remove yourself if you were able to? Um, Hit us up on SFB Society. Comment on the post on our Instagram at Adventures in Black Cinema. Um, uh, thank you so much to the team behind the podcast, our audio engineer, Matt Mozzarella, our producer, Angie, our executive producer, Miss Amanda Seals. Make sure you subscribe on Apple, follow us on Spotify, and wherever you listen to your podcast. Next week, we will be getting into the nitty gritty of musician Boots Riley's film, Sorry to Bother You crazy movie crazy crazy movie if you haven't seen it it is now streaming on hulu if you want to follow along so in the meantime stay safe stay black and stay blessed and i'll see y'all next week